What do you think ministry success looks like? What does ministry success look like? Not only for the pastor, but also for you, because God calls you all to a ministry of reconciliation. So you should be thinking about yourself. What does your ministry success look like? It can be actually a tough question to answer because there are a number of things that we think ministers are responsible for or that you yourselves are responsible for, but really aren't. So take conversions, for example. A Christian does not and cannot convert anyone. Only the Spirit of God can make someone a Christian. So the Christian is to be responsible for bringing the gospel to people's ears. We see that in Romans chapter 10. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news to others. Take church growth, for example. Or adding new people to the church. Again, the pastor or even you Christian, you know, you don't do that. Only the spirit of God can bring someone into his body and make someone a believer and then also cause someone to, to have that person join the church. I mean, sure, in membership class, we lay out a case for membership. Hopefully that's compelling and it's biblical. But only God grows his church. We pastors, you Christians, we bring the gospel to other, other people's ears. So today, our passage helps us examine and evaluate ourselves and our ministry success. And it does so mainly by focusing us to look at our lives of godliness, our lives of godliness. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 10. <clears throat> this letter was written by the Apostle Paul sometime in the mid-60s AD. And it was written to a young man named Timothy who was supposed to write the ship of this sort of ailing church that had lost its gospel centrality. And instead, we're focusing on unproductive, worthless things, uh, it says there in this letter. And Timothy was supposed to read this letter to the whole entire church. And so at the very end, it says that uh, it refers to you in the plural. Grace be with you, it says in chapter 6. So there, this letter is supposed to be delivered to you all. So imagine receiving this letter. If I were Timothy, I received this letter. And you all also are supposed to be very much involved in the reading of it and the paying attention to it. So with that, may we be encouraged to evaluate our lives in terms of ministry success, specifically in the area of godliness. Look at verse 6. It reads, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So again, I'm sure it's pretty obvious this was here. This here was written to specifically the pastor named Timothy about his ministry success. But this still applies to you, even if you are not a pastor, even if you don't want to be a pastor, even if you don't want to marry a pastor, this still concerns you. 
Because first, it, it lets you know what pastors ought to be doing. It lets you know what your pastors ought to be doing. Second, it helps you pray for your pastors. So you know, you now know, you know, as we look through these verses, what to be praying for me and Jeremy as we lead the church. And hopefully God gives us other men to shepherd, uh, to help shepherd and bear the load here. Third, keep in mind that everything that God calls pastors to be and do, he calls all Christians to be and do. And God intends pastors here to set the example. As we see next week, Timothy here is supposed to be an example to the flock. Now, of course, there are some things that pastors are called specifically to do, like teach uh, and preach. But even if you aren't teaching officially in this capacity from a pulpit, you'll, you'll probably find yourself teaching other people. Let's say in evangelism or Bible studies or Sunday school or teaching children. Everything we look at here today can, in some ways, be applied to you. So while Paul writes to Timothy, keep in mind here, how are we supposed to apply this to our own lives? Let's go ahead and jump in with point number one. What are the signs of ministry success? Point number one. First, a recognition that we are servants of Christ. A recognition that we are servants of Christ. Look there in verse six. It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. So here it's evident, very plain, a successful pastor serves Christ. That's a sign of ministry success. Now, this might be intuitive to some, but it is certainly not intuitive to all. Uh, as many of you guys know, we've, we have a house here in the city. And we've been interacting with contractors and we had, we found a contractor and uh, he's doing some work on our house. And he says that he's a spiritual guy. We got in a conversation about God and Christianity. He even says that he's familiar with it. Anyway, so he's trying to sell me all sorts of different projects on our house as contractors do. And the, the price, you know, would keep on escalating. And I told him, we just simply don't have the money. And he knew that I was a pastor. He knew I shepherded people. And he knew that we take offerings and stuff like that. But when he was trying to sell us our, the projects and we told him that we didn't have the money, he literally said, with no sarcasm, he just said, just take another offering. Take the money from the offering and use it uh, to remodel the house. So immediately I had to slam on the brakes and tell him, oh, no, no, no. This year I'm a very different pastor than the pastor you have in mind. And he went on and told me about how he had, re, he had helped this man redo his house. And uh, he, according to him, he said, this man, according to our contract, he said, this man was a fake to begin with. And this guy, this non-Christian, our contractor, said he could tell. You know, all the time he's talking about be a blessed man. And, and not that that's bad, but he could tell that there was something not right. So he figured that this guy was just taking offerings and uh, feeling his remodeling of his house. So I had to tell him, look, no, we are not that kind of church and I'm not that kind of pastor. So actually, you know, the church, the church knows exactly what our budget is. The church actually knows exactly how much I get paid. And you, we want that transparency. And so we bring to you guys the things like our budget, which we're going to in November, November 16. Uh, and then the church actually votes on it and approves it. So unfortunately, what was behind his comments, sort of just take another offering, was the idea that I pastor in order to serve my own agenda. I pastor in order to serve my own agenda. But in our passage, it's obvious that the pastor is not servant to himself, but he's a servant of Jesus there in verse six. So it says that Christ is our higher authority to which all pastors are ultimately accountable. 
I mean, you know that in Hebrews 13, 17, it says that it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. The reason why is because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So I don't really know what this accounting is going to look like, but I imagine that the Lord is going to call me before his judgment seat. And he's going to rewind everything and play all the conversations that I had with you guys, every word that I've spoken here and all the other churches that I've spoken at. He's going to call me to account. This is not my agenda as a pastor. It is Christ's agenda. This, after all, is Jesus's church. We all are Jesus's sheep that he bought with his very own blood. And so a minister, a pastor in this case, we are to herald Jesus's truth. As we are under shepherds of the Christ, of the chief shepherd, that is Jesus Christ. Well, how is the pastor to show that he is Christ's servant? How is the pastor to show that he is Christ's servant? Well, first he does so by serving up Christ's truth. He does so by serving up Christ's truth. So we don't preach our own truth. You know, some pastors, if they are, if they don't have an agenda to remodel their home, they might have an agenda to preach simply what they feel ought to be taught. But here it says that the, the pastor serves Christ. He shows himself. He evidences himself to be a servant of Christ by serving up Christ's truth. Look there. The pastor shows himself to be a good servant in verse six by means of putting these things before the brothers. And the, these things he's talking about is just he's talking about everything that's come before. He's talking about being gospel centered. He's talking about preaching Christ. He's talking about being concerned with church structure. He's concerned about finding the right men to fill those positions of leadership. He's talking about the church being a buttress of truth, a pillar of truth that heralds Christ Jesus and that preaches to true doctrine. Timothy's job here as a servant of Christ, my job here as a servant of God is to give God's word to God's people. I'm just a conveyor of God's truth here. The pastor is to know that the best sheep for the best diet for a sheep is God's word. That's why Paul says there, look down in 13 of chapter four. He says, until I come, devote yourself, devote yourself. Now that contrasts the false teachers who are devoting themselves to teachings of demons. He says, no, no, you devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to God's word, to exhortation, to teaching a conveyor of God's word to God's people. And then second Timothy, it says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. And we look a little bit more about that next week of this task of preaching. So Christ's servants are to teach God's truth. But did you notice there in verse six, they're also, also supposed to be trained in God's truth. So you as Christians, let's say in your ministry of reconciliation, you are supposed to be teaching others God's truth, but then you too are supposed to be trained in his truth. Look there in verse six again, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. The word trained here can literally be translated as nourished. So here he's saying that the shepherd is not only in charge of feeding others, but he himself needs to be feeding on the gospel, the very truths of Christ, which he calls uh, the words of the faith, the faith or the good doctrine, it says. So here the pastor not only nourishes others, but he himself is nourishing on the truths of the gospel. I mean, can you imagine the disaster that would take place? The disaster it would be if someone 
sought to nourish people with Christ without seeing the need to be nourished by Christ himself. Or in your own task, let's say, of evangelism, you're pointing people to Jesus, but you yourself are not nourished. You're not being nourished by the gospel. There's so many ways to think about this. I mean, you can think about it, let's say, in like the personal training aspect. I used to be a, I was a formal personal, former personal trainer. But can you imagine going to a trainer who neglected his or her, her own health and exercise? I would never go to a trainer like that. I don't think you guys would either. So you see here, again, you're thinking about trajectories. Earlier on, we thought about the trajectories of a pastor's character. How do you shepherd people if one's own character is messed up? Uh, here, you think about the trajectory of, of feeding on God's word. If a pastor doesn't care about feeding on the word of God, then neither will those who follow in his footsteps. It is that clear, that simple. Now, if the Christian, if the pastor has large, hefty meals from scripture, having tasted that the word is good, naturally he's going to, like a food, he's going to be pointing people to the word or the food. He's going to find out, seek out where the best food is. And he's going to be sharing on Facebook and Twitter. I went to this restaurant, that restaurant. Just as our own Yelp elite critic Paul Kim does. Although I guess in this case, the pastor or the Christian, instead of being a foodie, would be a wordy. He knows what God says is best for the sheep's soul. He knows what feeds those sheep best. And so he's going to nourish himself with it. This also may seem intuitive to some, you know, if the pastor is to nourish others, he first must be nourishing uh, himself on the gospel truths. But it actually isn't. I mean, you guys know this. You're going to tell people that they can be saved by the word of God. But then if you were to look at your own personal spiritual discipline life, how much are you feeding off of the word of God? For the pastor, this is so much more important because a pastor ought to be first and foremost. You have to be able to see the sheep and know I actually am a sheep, too. And that same word that we teach, the pastor should be able to say, I actually am just like them and I need to be feeding on it, too. And so that's Timothy's goal. He knows what the sheep ought to eat, but he himself knows, too, that I am just like them and I grow by feeding on the word of God. That's how he is supposed to be a good servant. It's by not only teaching the good doctrine, but continuing in the good doctrine. Timothy, he was supposed to be a good servant, nourished by the gospel. And it's awesome. In 2 Timothy, you see there that uh, this, this faith that dwelt first in his grandmother, and he gives her name Lo- Lois. Well, we know nothing about Lois, but here she, gives, she has props in Scripture, in Holy Scripture, because she was feeding her grandson the truths of the gospel. And then it says also his mother Eunice. We don't know anything about Eunice. But yeah, there she was probably feeding the gospel truths to young Timothy. And so he says, look, that faith that dwelt first in Lois and that dwelt then in Eunice and now dwells in you. I am sure you continue in that. The reality, though, just like, you know, just as pastors know, you know, we're not perfect Christians, but we need encouragement to be feeding on these very truths that we teach to be feeding on the truths that we go and we evangelize people with. And so Paul comes alongside of him and he tells him, okay, let me just expand to you what exactly it looks like to be nourished by the word. This brings us to point number two. 
sign of ministry success, not only that they would be servants of God, but that they'd be training for godliness, training for godliness. Look there in verse seven. Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise of the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. See, if he was to be a good servant of Christ, he must train himself for godliness. This requires him to recognize what the junk, where the junk food is and where the real food is. To recognize junk food and say, I'm going to have nothing to do with that. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. So he sees the bad food and he recognizes that will just bring cancer and destruction upon the body. I mean, these false teachers, they were fixed on irreverent or silly myths. Uh, you could translate irreverent as worthless things. In chapter 1, verse 4 there, they were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Things that promote speculation. So there they are off in the corner sort of having great and wonderful dialogues about endless genealogies. But nothing really to do with the truths of Christ. And it says there in chapter 4 that these were actually behind the false teachers teachings were actually teachings of demons. And they promoted some form of asceticism sort of an appearance of godliness while being completely in a vacuum of godliness. They promoted an unbiblical self-denial. They were denying the good things that God had created. They said, don't get married. The better way to go is singleness. Don't eat certain foods. The better way is over here. Paul says in 621 that this leads some. These folks are swerving from the faith. They have clearly departed from the faith. They are not servants. But in relation to this training for godliness stuff, what exactly is godliness? What exactly is godliness? Keep in mind, this concerns you here. This applies to all Christians. Timothy here is supposed to be an example. Look down at verse 12. Set an example of godliness. So all Christians here, this applies to you. And Paul is really concerned. If you're just to read through this first Timothy, the word godliness comes up again and again and again, so many more times than it does in the rest of the New Testament. <clears throat> Now, this word godliness can simply be substituted with the words the Christian faith. You could say that. But for our purposes, we want to be more specific here. Godliness, as we're going to define it, as John Piper <clears throat> would probably define it, uh, is a life of glad submission to God. A life of glad submission to God. So underneath glad, you can throw in love. You can put delight Underneath submission, you could put worship, you could put obedience, you could put clinging to godliness there, the words of the faith. So if you're, I know a couple of you guys are interested in linguistics. <clears throat> the, word, the root word here for godliness is tied to awe and reverence for God. So when one has awe and reverence for God, it naturally uh, comes with a, a mindset, a, a worship that is fitting for that awe. Not only all of this thing that you worship, but the worship itself, too. And then it also applies a life of obedience, a life of obedience that is fitting with uh, reverence. I revere Christ so much that I obey him. I love his words. <clears throat> so here. This connects, actually, with the nourished, nourishing aspect, what the pastor is to feed on and what the pastor is to teach. So as one seeks to have awe and worship and reverence accompanied with obedience, 
nourishing yourself on the gospel or being nourished on the gospel is hugely crucial for that because God reveals himself through his word. As a leader of the flock here, he's supposed to train himself for the life of godliness, a life of glad submission to Christ. But the way he's supposed to go about training himself for godliness, as, the, as it's translated here, for godliness, is by training himself in that very godliness. So don't think ultimate end, I'm training myself for that end. Think the very, the, the very way I get to that end is through that godliness, training in that very godliness. So when you read here for, think also in, presently. Train yourself for godliness. Does anybody have the King James Version here? The King James Version says, exercise thyself for godliness. Exercise thyself. And the word here, the word train or exercise, it really has to do with exercise. Uh, It shares the same root word with gymnastics and gymnasium. So here Paul is very much thinking in terms of exercise or training, as we're soon going to see. Um, Paul, Paul and Timothy, they were very familiar with the culture of Ephesus uh, and the culture of the Greco-Roman world, which means that they were familiar with the Greco-Roman games, which were great shows of, of athleticism. And of course, anyone who's going to participate in the games needs to be physically disciplined themselves. And it means they have to train. So, uh, you know, I had thought about doing... Um, you know, the Spartan race or, uh, you know, the mud run or whatever that thing's called, tough mutter. <clears throat> and I thought, as I thought about the training, I thought, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> because I knew that for me to get through the exercise, I have to train. I have physical limitations, too, uh, which prevented me. But if any of you guys have trained for an event, you know that you've got to push yourself in all sort of different ways. You've got to push yourself physically. You've got to push yourself mentally. In our case, the event is the whole course of life lived in glad submission to God. That's the event here. The whole course of life lived in glad submission to God. Ultimately, we find this glad submission reaching its climax and finding its fulfillment in the eternal afterlife. But we gotta plan. We gotta train for. We gotta train ourselves for it and in it. We gotta do this now. And I'm thankful when I read this. When I read this scripture, you know, train yourself for godliness. Exercise thyself unto godliness. That here he just speaks very plainly. He conveys plainly what's involved in training for this event. It requires self-control. It requires discipline, patience, perseverance. When I think of training, I think labor, I think work. It takes personal discipline to go about the spiritual disciplines. Now, by spiritual discipline, uh, here I mean those disciplines or the things that God gives, the things that we can do to grow in godliness and in the Christian faith. Now, these things are the things that God himself, as I've used this illustration a lot, I just take it from Don Whitney, he sort of lays down the tracks that we are to get on And on those tracks, we come to know him more if we are Christians. So that's how we grow in glad submission to God. By knowing him more, knowing his will more, having our hearts changed by his word. So when we think of spiritual disciplines here, you can think Bible reading. So Timothy himself, he's supposed to dedicate himself to the reading of scripture and reading it to you guys. Even hearing scripture read is actually a spiritual discipline. It's one of the reasons why we read scripture. Another one is prayer. So numerous times we're called to pray. 
I mean, the whole entire book of Psalms are basically prayers. We're also called to scripture meditation. And in that culture, they were used to scripture memorization. So Psalm 1911 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might, I might not sin against you. And we can go on. There are personal spiritual disciplines. There are corporate spiritual disciplines. When we think of corporate disciplines, here we got the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> God lays down a track for us to experience this, where we are reminded again about the death and crucifixion of Christ. We can behold it with our eyes as we see broken bread and drink of the fruit of the vine. We got baptism. We got church fellowship. We got congregational singing, which should and ought to be encouraging. So here we're supposed to be training ourselves in them. <clears throat> so a question for you. How is your training going? When you think training, when you think training for godliness, a life lived in glad submission to God, do you think labor? Do you think intensity, self-discipline, self-control, patience, perseverance? Do you think meeting God in these things? So many times we have such a low view of these spiritual disciplines. Oh, we got to go about reading the Bible again. And the pastor tells me I'm supposed to pray. And God says I'm supposed to do this and do that. I'm supposed to have fellowship with Christians. But we forget sort of the ultimate goal there. When we read train yourself for godliness, we think I'm supposed to train myself to do these things more. When really we ought to be thinking more holistically. We train ourselves in godliness, namely what does it look like to live in glad submission to a holy and gracious God? That's the life we ought to be training for. And reading the word and memorizing scripture, that helps us do exactly that. Are you exercising yourself unto godliness? You know, um, a lot works against us here in L.A. You have to admit that L.A. is arguably the American hub of entertainment culture. You just have to acknowledge that. Uh, in some respects, you could even say the hub of the world for entertainment culture. And then you understand entertainment in the larger context of America driven by materialism. So we scream out, entertain me and comfort me. These are the, these are the two great idols, as I understand it, of America here. So if you've grown up in this area, you should not at all be surprised that you probably struggle with idolizing comfort and entertainment more than you realize. So in that culture, when we come to the idea of training oneself, exercising thyself, disciplining oneself, let's say to go to bed early because we're going to worship God attentively. When we think about going bed, going to bed early, let's say, or waking up early in an effort to prioritize regular Bible reading in the morning, you know, that just disrupts our schedule too much. That's an inconvenience to what I want to do. But hey, if there's a video game that's out that I want to play, or if there's a YouTube video or a TV show to watch, a concert to attend, we carve out time in a heartbeat. Entertain me, we say. Comfort me, we say. Friends, as you reflect on your own life, keep in mind that if you are passive in the effort to exercise thyself unto godliness, you will no doubt find yourself to be passively exercised by the world and for worldliness. If you're passively going about the spiritual life and living a life in glad submission to God, you will no doubt find yourself to be discipled by the world and for 
the world. So what's keeping yourself from exercising yourself unto godliness, from nurturing yourself and nourishing yourself on the word of God? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would probably say, well, I want to do that. I just have low desire. So my desire for other things, whether that be sleep, food, sex, comfort, relaxation, our desires to take care of our own problems on our own even are greater than our desire for a life lived in glad submission to God. So while it's not good that our desires are low, it's great if you could actually identify that low desire. I just sometimes don't desire God. And here a pastor author named John Piper has helped me so much in growing in desire and growing in delight as well as duty. So the spiritual disciplines Um, and in his own pursuit of God, he's actually marked by a very downcast soul. He's a man who struggles with depression, actually. And so he knows what it's like to not desire God, which is why one of his best books out there is called When I Don't Desire God. What do I do? How do I take my soul and exercise my soul unto godliness when I don't want to live in glad submission to God? And it's a fantastic book. And a lot of it has to do with like spiritual disciplines. How do I go about reading the word and, and fellowshipping with God and memorizing scripture and loving him more and worshiping him more? You know what he does? He prays. Now that might sound strange or counterintuitive because prayer is very much a spiritual discipline. But nevertheless, he prays. And the reason why he prays is because he knows he has a heart problem. And so when he prays, he prays as only a helpless man can do. He does the only thing a helpless man can do which is get on his knees and pray that God would intervene in his life sovereignly to work in his heart in such a way to change him so that he would begin to love Christ more and more. And so this is what he prays. He prays for this acronym, I-O-U-S. I've used this before. So if you've heard this before, you get it again. He prays before he goes to scripture. He, you know, when he's getting out of bed, before his feet hit the ground, he prays I for I-O-U-S. This is I, this is an acronym. It says incline. So this is Psalm 119, verse 36. He, he, said, he prays, incline my heart to you, not to prideful gain or any false motive. So there, it's wonderful. He opens his eyes and he thinks, I need to be changed by the Spirit of God. Incline my heart to you when I don't want to desire you. He says, open my eyes. This is the O, Psalm 119, verse 18. He says, open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Sometimes I don't find God's word wonderful. But nevertheless, Piper prays. He says, open my eyes, God. Incline my heart. Open my eyes. And then the U is for unite. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because sometimes I don't really care. Sometimes I care about my own name. I care about other people's name, but not your name. That's Psalm Psalm 86, verse 11. And then the S is for satisfy. Satisfy me with your steadfast love that's glad submission right there when you behold a great god we then are left after we've beheld him satisfied with your steadfast love a life lived not in slavish submission to god but a life of glad submission to god that's psalm 90 verse 14 incline open unite satisfy Right there, I think that helps us understand what the spiritual disciplines are. You set them in the larger picture of a life lived in glad submission to God, not just Bible reading, prayer, 
fellowship. I got to do these things, but delighting in God. And he prays that God would change him. So here, these are prayers for God to intervene. And they are prayers that he does in faith. You guys see that? As he prays, he prays in faith that God would actually do these things, that these are actually the tracks that we are supposed to get on and the tracks that he himself says work and the tracks that he himself, his spirit is working in. So he prays in faith, relying on God's grace to work through those very things. So many times we approach the spiritual disciplines as if they were as powerful as our own efforts. Man-made effort applied to man-made things. You don't get very far on those things. But here again, he prays that he would really, that God himself would be working in these things, helping him to know and love him more. So training yourself for godliness is so much more than doing. Don't come away thinking here, train yourself for godliness means you need to exert yourself, which you do and we're commanded to. Ultimately, uh, we do these things for a different reason, to worship God. So what's behind your sluggish reading of the word? And, you know, maybe you just don't care. Maybe you just don't carve out time. You know, really, it's a heart that is a bit inattentive to the things of God. I hung out with um, one of my friends, a church planter, a very seasoned church planter. He's about 60, I think. Um, And he wrote a book all about gospel centeredness or cross centeredness. And I was asking him when I was in Louisville, I was asking him about some advice for me as a young church planter. What do you think I should do? What should I concern myself with? And one of the first pieces of advice he gave me, he said, I would attend to your heart. And one practice that he has is he says that if he finds himself sort of going two or three weeks without being moved, affected in the heart by, let's say, the truth sung about or the truths we read or the truths preached, he says he really takes time. Uh, to do a heart check when he sings about these glorious truths you know the similar truths that we sung about about christ taking on flesh to die on the cross for us he says if my heart isn't welling up with praise something is wrong and so he encouraged me to do a heart check and i encourage you you know i know that you guys are out there sharing the truths of the gospel with your friend but as here we're encouraged to nourish ourselves on the word we got to check our hearts And when we do so, we begin to see these spiritual disciplines in a different light. No longer things that we have to do out of merely duty, but things that we that we have to know Christ more, to gain Christ and to be found in him. One Puritan pastor, he said this, thinking about duty and spiritual disciplines. He said the reason why people complain so much of difficulty in duty is because their hearts are not prepared. He says, make preparation for holy duties and you will have success in holy duties. So what kind of preparation did you go about doing this morning as you prepared yourself for this holy duty of worshiping God together with the church? Anything? Did you go to bed early yesterday so that you could get up early this morning? Any chance you prayed for us that our hearts would be together and in, in, in unity as we sung the same praises together? Reflecting the great, beautiful, heavenly community where we're worshiping Christ. Any chance you guys pray for me as I preach the word here? That I would be delighting in these various truths, nourishing myself on the gospel as I'm cur- encouraging you to be nourished by them? Make preparation for holy duties and you shall have success 
and holy duties by the Spirit of God. So we've seen that signs of success, number one, of a ministry, a ministry success is number one, that we are servants of Jesus, if we have that mentality. Number two, it's if we are training ourselves for godliness. And then number three, sign of ministry success is that we be concerned with salvation. Concerned with salvation. Look there in verse seven. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise of the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. So here in this verse, in an effort to encourage the, his readers and Timothy towards godliness and training in godliness, he holds out the superior value of godliness. And he contrasts that with the training one might give, let's say, to, to the, the Greco-Roman games. He says, if earthly physical training is of limited value, he says, well, you ought to look at godliness. This has value in every way, he says, unlimited value, because it holds, that is the life of glad submission to God, a life of godliness holds a promise for this life and the life to come. Now, if you know godliness, you know, also, if you think about godliness, you can go back to chapter three. Here, he says that Christ coming in the flesh and dying on the cross for sins is the mystery of godliness. So here he points us to a life lived in glad submission to Christ. It says there, in 16, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And this is exactly why Jesus Christ came. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life. You want a definition? You want to know what it is? That they know the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here, Christ himself is the source of life. And in Christ, you find salvation. Nourish yourself in the gospel truths. Train yourself for a life of glad submission in Christ because Christ himself is salvation. He is the eternal life. The gospel says that he created man to be in relationship with him. Through Christ, all things were made and for him, all things were made. Which means that if we are not living a life in glad submission to God, we are actually rebelling against God, our great creator, on whom we depend and to whom we ought to live. And for that, we earn ourselves just condemnation, sin, judgment, and hell. We understand that treason against a king is worthy of death. And so we earn for ourselves death, judgment. The good news, though, is the very gospel. There in 1 Timothy 1.17, Jesus Christ came, or 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In him there is salvation. Which is why Paul says, look, I want you guys to labor for a life lived in glad submission to this Christ. He bears the sins that we deserved. He bears the wrath that we deserved. He dies on the cross. He takes our punishment for us. And then three days later, he's raised from the dead by the spirit of God to show all that God was that serious. That you can bank on his promise. But he's not only the source of salvation. He's also our model for salvation. He is also our model for salvation. He is a perfect God. 
who labored underneath God's will. He was faced with various trials and various temptations, but yet he was perfect in all ways. He lived his life in glad submission to God, even though it was so hard to, let's say, go to the cross, the climax of this great work of of redemption. Did you notice there that the life lived in glad submission to him or godliness in verse eight? It says it holds the promise. It holds the promise, a life of godliness. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, you got to you got to appreciate here how it helps us all sort of set our priorities right. What is it that you, you think holds promise here in this world? A relationship, a job, money. What is it here that you think offers a promise for this life? Because God here says, no, you don't put your hope in something that lasts only in this life. He says, you concern yourself with something that gives you a promise not only for this life, but also for the next life. It holds, godliness holds a life of glad submission, holds a great and wonderful promise for you here in this life and the next. So this eternal life that we talk about, you can have that now. You know what this eternal life is, what it looks like, because you would know the Father and you know the Son. And then you finally lay hold of this eternal life, finally, fully, when Christ comes to return. It gives us a different picture of what it looks like to read the Bible, go to church, act like you're praying. Right? These are, these are marks maybe of, of so-called godliness or even not get drunk. Don't have premarital sex. Don't have extramarital sex when you're married. Giving money to the church. Here it, it casts us, it puts us underneath a large category of what it looks like to lay hold of this promise for the life and the life to come by living a life of godliness. This godliness is a godliness that possesses awe and reverence for Christ. It results in worship and obedience for all of life. Mere religiosity alone puts people in the same camp as these false teachers they appear to be religious they even probably go to church right those people are in the church teaching false doctrine they actually have a doctrine but they don't have god you see how how strange that is one pastor puritan pastor he puts it this way he says to be honorable in the world or you know have an appearance of godliness to be honorable in the world and ungodly is like an ape in purple you can see that visually. You have this chimpanzee running around doing the things that chimpanzees do, beasts do, but yet he's donning the king's robe. And you're, whoa, that just looks really strange. Here the inner man needs to be changed. And until you have a changed heart, you stand underneath the condemnation of God. The bad news is that God says you cannot do that on your own will. You cannot change your heart in your own will. The good news is that Christ can change your heart by the power of the Spirit. That's why Christ came into the world. We needed divine intervention to save us. Christ Jesus, who was outside of the world, came into the world because the world was bad. And why did he do that? He did that to save sinners. So he calls all. You want a work that can actually change your heart? You trust in my work. And he calls you to repent of your sins and believe. Verse 10 makes this all explicit. It says there, look there, to this end we toil and strive. So he's toiling and he's striving for godliness in his own life and a life of godliness in other people's lives. Why? Because 
we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. He's the Savior of all. That's why we labor. That's why we toil. And that's why we strive. Because that is our God. And He saves. He's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Now, some of you guys... If you're a non-Christian, you may be thinking, okay, so the pastor's calling me to repent and believe and be saved, but if he's the savior of all people, regardless of what I believe, why should I believe? Why should I pursue godliness? Here, know that Paul is not talking about some form of universalism as if all people are saved. If you read Paul's writings, let's say in Thessalonians, you know very clearly that God's wrath rests upon sinners who don't repent and believe. Uh, So he is not thinking about universalism here. If you look at verse 10, a helpful way to understand this, he's a savior of all people. A helpful way to understand this is to look at the word especially. Because it says he's a savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, typically, people think especially as a subset of a larger group. Like, I love gummy bears, especially the red ones. Uh, But it can also mean, this word especially in Greek also means namely or that is. So here in this case, what he's saying is that he is indeed the savior of all men. That is all those who believe. So he's not talking about universalism. Going back to verse 10 here and the point that I'm making, the verse contains all the truth behind all this talk about spiritual disciplines and training for godliness. These are the means by which we come to know and love God. A life of glad submission to that God, our gracious God, who is the savior of all people. And so you've got to set this idea, this talk about spiritual disciplines underneath this large umbrella. And then you understand things like Paul's words when he says in Philippians 3, 8, that all he wants to do is know him. Here we're talking about relationship here, not just doing these things that uh, this God that I can't know has told me to do. He's talking about really knowing him and gaining him and grasping him and being found in him. It's a life lived in glad submission to that God who actually cares about our salvation we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the only true and living god because he is the sovereign savior he demands our allegiance our pursuits our submission and everybody else's that's why we toil for godliness here in this age that's why we strive for godliness that's why we train ourselves for godliness in ourselves and in others so that Christ would be magnified and that we too would be satisfied in him. So if you look at 1 Timothy 1.17, go ahead and turn to that passage. Here you see Paul's boast in the king. He talks about how he, was, he himself as the greatest sinner, the chief of sinner was saved. And he says there, this is the whole grand purpose for while he toils and strives to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever he labors for godliness so that christ would be exalted and that god the only true and living god would receive all of these things honor glory forever and ever and he does that by saving he brings glory to himself by saving us as we tell the world that he is the only god who saves the only God worth banking in, the only God worth casting ourselves upon him in order that he might deliver and be proven to be the one who delivers. This is why it's such an imperative here for us to pursue godliness, to train ourselves. Turn back over to 4.16, chapter 4.16. 
Here, Paul, in this passage here, as we look at next week, he's just continuing to encourage Timothy to have a successful ministry. And he says, you, Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. Personal godliness, godliness being worked out in various characteristics. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, myself, you all, if you are a believer here today, you are a servant of that king. And you're supposed to be nourishing others with his word, as pastors especially, as we teach his word from the pulpit. And we're supposed to be nourishing ourselves on it. We, as those servants, as we live a life under glad submission to God, we're supposed to be training ourselves for this very thing as we nourish ourselves on the word. So we have been raised in this good doctrine and we teach this good doctrine and we feed on this good doctrine. Ultimately, because we want to glorify Christ as the one who saves. And so we want others to be saved as well.